you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of ten remained in the other towns. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgiving and with singing, with cymbals, harps and lyres. And the sons of the singers gathered together from the district surrounding Jerusalem and from the villages of the Nitophatites, also from Beth Gilgal and from the region of Geba and Asmaveth. For the singers had built for themselves villages around Jerusalem. And the priests, and the Levites purified themselves, and they purified the people and the gates and the wall. Then I brought the leaders of Judah up onto the wall and appointed two great choirs that gave thanks. One went to the south on the wall to the dung gate, and after them went Hoshiah and half of the leaders of Judah, and Azariah, Ezra, Meshullam, Judah, Benjamin, Shemaiah, and Jeremiah and certain of the priest's sons with trumpets. Zechariah, the son of Jonathan, son of Shemaiah, son of Mataniah, son of Micaiah, son of Zachur, son of Asaph, and the relatives, Shemaiah, Azarel, Milalai, Gilalai, Maai, Nathanael, Judah, and Hanani, with the musical instruments of David, the man of God. And Ezra the scribe went before them, At the fountain gate, they went up straight before them by the stairs of the city of David, at the ascent of the wall, above the house of David, to the water gate on the east. The other choir of those who gave thanks went to the north, and I followed them with half of the people, on the wall, above the tower of the ovens, to the broad wall, and above the gate of Ephraim, and by the gate of Yeshanah, and by the fish gate, and the tower of Hananel, and the tower of the hundred, to the sheep gate. And they came to a halt at the gate of the guard. So both choirs of those who gave thanks stood in the house of God, and I and half of the officials with me. And the priests, Eliakim, Maseah, Miniamin, Micaiah, Elonai, Zechariah, and Hananiah, with trumpets, and Messiah, Shemaiah, Eliezer, Uzi, Jehonanan, Malkijah, Elam, and Azer. And the singers sang with Jezrahiah as their leader. And they offered great sacrifices that, that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away.
Well, good morning, everyone. Great to, to see you all there. Great to see the kids in our midst. Hello. Um, we're looking mostly this morning at Nehemiah chapter 12. We got two weeks ago. This week, chapter 12. Next week, 13. Then we're in left and right. Be praying for us as a church and for me. But now in Nehemiah chapter 12, we see something that we need to hear. And we're going to learn about it and we're going to do it. But before we do that, Let's pray that in these next moments we have together, God would, would come close to us as we know he promises to and speak to each of our hearts. Can you do that with me? Let's do it. Uh, Father, we come to you this morning and we long for your presence. We long uh, to see you move in our midst. And so, Lord, as we pause now to look at your word, as we pause to invite your presence, fix our eyes on Jesus. And build us up in our most holy faith. Because we pray this in the name of the one who was crucified, who died and was resurrected and will come again, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, if uh, you are living in the world, which I suspect you might be, uh, you will know that there's a, a sense going around that if you will become a Christian, that is, you will respond to Jesus Christ and you will live differently, then what you are doing is becoming, sadly, less human. Now, let me say what I mean by that. It means that there's perception that we're beings that have so much potential and that if we can only explore our inner self and we can find the freedom that we deserve, then life will be truly satisfying and we'll become fully human. Religion, though... It puts vicious lines around who we are. It says in regard to our sexuality or our freedoms, or you, 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 you embrace that stuff and you may as well put chains on your wrists. You're making yourself less human and less free. But Jesus said, famously, wonderfully, why has Jesus come? He says, I have come that they may have what? Life! And have it more abundantly. So Jesus claims that when he comes and he invites us by his life, his death, his resurrection, to come into relationship with God through him, it's not dehumanizing, it's making us fully human. Jesus claims the opposite. It's that sin, walking apart from him, is what makes us less human. And I want to show us briefly this morning how this works out in an area that's important to each of us, and we all have it, even the men among us, and that is emotions. So let's look at how this works in terms of emotions. So think about negative emotions, right? We all get negative emotions, don't we? If you hear last week, you know poor old Dom had his car mirror smashed. That's a, a negative emotion. But there can be many more serious ones, can't there? We we're diagnosed with a very serious illness, or we're badly injured, or we lose our job, and we wonder how materially we can survive, or more even than those, perhaps, relational difficulties. Maybe we get dumped if we're dating someone. Maybe our marriage is under strain or even breaks. Maybe, maybe there's friendships that are separated. Those bring negative Emotions, everybody has them. Maybe we actually look at the world around us and we grieve what we see, the injustice. Everybody experiences those emotions. They're like this image. I think I've got an image for you here. Very uh, complicated, done by Brennan. You see, that's the image, right? You're on the track down. But 
Um, becoming a Christian means that you will continue to experience all of these emotions, the, the negative, difficult emotions. Sometimes um, some will say, if you become a Christian and you receive the life that Jesus gives you, that means that you only ever experience positive emotions. Your car mirror is not broken, your relationships are never strained, all that sort of stuff. Rubbish. You know, that's, that's bad teaching. Because we also live in this world, we're subject to negative emotions and to griefs and hardships and all these kind of things. But, and this is, this is going to sound odd, if you're a Christian, you are subject to far more of these negative emotions than if you are not a Christian. I'll say that again. If you're a Christian, you have a whole sense, a whole different uh, compartment of negative or difficult emotions than a non-Christian does. Let, let me explain. So when you experience something that's difficult, your car mirror is broken, whatever it is, if you're not a Christian, your actual grief or frustration or sadness terminates in the circumstance that just has happened to you. You understand what I mean? Your car mirror is broken, or think about a much more serious one. Your marriage fails. If you are not a Christian, well, it terminates in the failed marriage, isn't it? Because there's no God. You're just here by a, a random collection of chances of evolutionary development. So, so when this happens, you might, you're not going to shake your fist at God because you don't believe there is a God. You're just a random being in the world. So your suffering and your grief terminates in the broken marriage, and that's bad. But if you're a Christian, it doesn't stop with the broken marriage, does it? If you're a Christian in the context of the broken marriage then you will go to God. And actually that will deepen your grief because you believe and you know that you're not here by a random chance. You're not here by accident. There's a loving God who's got all the power, the omnipotence in the universe and who loves you so much he sent Jesus. So your question must be at some point, why? Why, God, don't you stop it? Because you could. Why am I going through this suffering, whatever it might be? Why am I experiencing these negative emotions? You see, it actually deepens the negative emotion because it just doesn't terminate with the event itself. You say, you go back to God. That's where it terminates. So you go, God, why are you allowing this to happen? And more than this, that, that's one area that you, we go further down as a Christian than a non-Christian. Another one is, if you are a not-yet-Christian person, and you look at your life in a period of reflection. Uh, I've been watching the Alone uh, documentary, <laughs> the, the reality TV at the moment. If you haven't seen it, it's really quite fun. And you see that as they're alone, they reflect these guys on, um, on who they are, the mistakes they've made in their lives, those kind of things. And if you're not a Christian, as you reflect on that, you can feel real grief. You do feel grief. You see the way that you've let other people down and you see the way you've let yourself down. But if you're a Christian... You go deeper again because as, you, as the Holy Spirit moves in your heart, you see who God is and you see his holiness and his perfection and his beauty and then you see who you are and you notice the incredible gulf and the difference and you are grieved. Your heart breaks. If you're not a Christian, you can't grieve over sin towards God because you don't believe God exists. But when you know God and you see the brokenness of your own life and heart, there's a deeper level of grief. Uh, if you, maybe you look at it graphically like this. We've got a second slide. 
We go deeper down. And if you've journeyed with us through the book of Nehemiah, you'll know that there are periods in this book of Ezra and Nehemiah where God's people are confronted by their mess. And they reflect on who they are and who God is. And, and there's, for example, um, last week in chapter 9, verse 1, it says, Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and sackcloth and with earth on their heads. There's whole chapters of these books where God's people are going, we've really stuffed up. God, we've brought this on ourselves. There's, a, there's an incredibly deep grief that can come to someone who knows God. And it's deeper and it's, it's more concerning. And if you doubt me, read some of the Psalms. Read, for example, Psalm 88. Read that. It, it, it can be called the dark night of the soul. It's a dark night of the soul, which if you're a Christian, you cannot experience in the same way. Becoming a Christian makes you more human rather than less. You experience the negative emotions more. But we're getting to Nehemiah chapter 12 today. And I want to tell you that it's the same on the flip side. Just as Christians experience the negative emotions to a greater degree, let's think about the positives. So what are some emotions like joy, celebration, hope, and pleasure that we humans enjoy. What are some of the things that bring those on? Well, it might be a romantic engagement, the first time that you're, you fall in love with someone. It could be maybe holding your child for the first time in the hospital. It could be sitting in the new car with the new car smell or the fake new car smell when you buy a secondhand car, whatever it is. It could be... Sitting on a tropical beach on a holiday, it should be, and this is a big one, sitting down with a big appetite to a really well-cooked meal. Those things bring us pleasure and joy, don't they? Those things can be things of celebration, and all of us, Christians and non-Christians, experience those wonderful joys of life. You can look slide three, I think. There we go. So, so there's, this, there's this upswing that, we, that everybody experiences. But if you're a Christian, just as your negative emotions can go deeper, your positive emotions also become fully human. There is so much more to them. So think about it. If uh, you're a Christian, you enjoy these good things. But if you're not a Christian, the positive emotions that you're experiencing terminate on the circumstances that cause the positive emotion, don't they? So if you're at the wedding of your child uh, and you're celebrating in their marriage, your joy, your ecstasy, your pleasure terminates in that event itself. If you're eating that wonderful steak uh, uh, when you're hungry, if you're not a Christian, you go, that is a fine piece of meat. But when you're a Christian, your joy doesn't terminate in the circumstance, does it? When you're a Christian, your joy terminates in the giver of the gift, so if you're watching your child get married, you're not just thankful for them. You see in that moment, this happens when I do weddings, you see in the moment what um, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5 about this wedding symbolizing the deeper reality of God's gift to his people and love for his church. Or if you're eating that steak, you're not just enjoying the meat, you're saying, God, you gave that and it's good. Thank you. 
Uh, Scripture tells us that the Father above is the giver of all good gifts. And when you're a Christian, your joy doesn't terminate in the thing that you're enjoying. It goes deeper. It goes far higher. It terminates in God. So if you're looking at a sunset, you don't just go, that's a wonderful sunset that's being produced by random evolutionary development. You go, God, you made that. You're an artist. How did you do that? The joy expands and it deepens and it overflows. And because it's a joy that terminates in God, the Christian's joy is actually a joy that can continue unaffected when there are no circumstances to rejoice in as well. Think about that. Psalm 4, it says, There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. Then it says this, listen to this. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. Listen, that psalmist says, I've got more joy as a Christian or as a believer in God in the Old Testament people of God. I have more joy than they have even when their grain and their wine abound, when their share portfolio and real estate portfolio is booming. I've got more joy because it terminates not in the thing, but in the person of God. It's why Paul can be worshipping in his jail in Philippi, in chains, not knowing whether his life is going to be taken. What are they doing? They're singing and praising God with hymns in the middle of the night in Philippi. And then Paul can write to the same Philippian church and say, that's why I say rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice. You see, the joy of the Lord, if you're a Christian, is our strength. That's what Nehemiah said in chapter 8, hasn't he? The joy of the Lord is your strength. And for a, a Christian, if you're a Christian today, your hope and your pleasure and your joy and your ecstasy in all of the ups and downs of life terminate in who God is, in what God has done for you. This is what we call Worship. Uh, worship of God is simply reflecting in the circumstances of life, reflecting deeper who God is and what He's done. Worship of God comes to God and says, All of my experience, up and down, it, it terminates in you. You are the focus of who I am in my life, is. You are the focus of everything that I do and all that I long for. It's why in Revelation, and this is a verse that uh, when I was a new Christian, I was like, I want to like these verses, but I just struggle. You know what I mean? The ones that talk about us worshiping God day and night for all eternity. And I'm in like, oh man, those choruses are going to get pretty boring. You know, like we're going to be singing the same one over and over and over again. And it looks like everyone's saying, that's a wonderful thing. But it's like, when I was a new Christian, I was like, but that's boring. I mean, I want to go fishing. I want to go surfing. You know, I want to see the things of God's creation. But Revelation gets it. And over the years, I've realized that when our worship and enjoyment of life terminates in God himself, there is nothing better. There is no greater ecstasy or joy or satisfaction. None of the other material things, as good as they can be, can do that. Only God can. Which is why fourth and final slide produced by Brendan, I might say, this is what it looks like for a Christian, right? It's like the tick. Yes, our, our, our sadness and our grief can run deeper, but our joy runs higher. It's worship. Now, I'm nearly done, believe it or not. 
So in a moment, we're going to be doing some stuff. But um, what I want us to think about, though, is that this door to worship in Jesus Christ is wide open. So if you're not yet a Christian, the door is open. It says, come and experience this for yourself. If you are a Christian, though, yes, the door is wide open, but entry through that door into true worship, into the fully human emotions that God created for us, it's not automatic. Um, You don't automatically enter that door as a Christian. You actually have to consciously walk through it. And as we look at Nehemiah chapter 12 briefly, I want to show you five things we learn about walking through that worship door. Five things. Number one, worship is corporate. This is interesting, isn't it? Because we live in the most individualistic society on the planet, probably through all of history. It says everything is about me. And, And in terms of our worship, we think, well, it's all about my worship of God. There's God and there's me, and that's all we need. And so you can hear people say, I don't need to come into a, bo- a gathering. I can worship God at the beach. Every time I catch a good wave, I reflect God's glory and go, thank you, God. That's worship. Or someone could say, I worship God in a forest or I worship God in my living room. Now, is that worship of God? Absolutely, it's worship of God. It's true. You can worship God like that, but it's not all true. Because worship in the Bible, as we see it recorded in the story of God's people throughout the centuries, is nearly always corporate. Have a look for yourself. Nearly always in the Old Testament and the New Testament, it's God's people coming together. Um, There are many reasons that Jesus saves his people and calls them into a body, a church. One of the reasons is that you and I need each other in worship. Um, If you're like me, very often... Coming to church in the morning is not an easy thing, particularly when it's cold. Uh, Coming to church, it it can be a difficult thing, and sometimes I'll often feel quite flat, and I'm helping run the service, you know, so you're going to feel that too. But then nearly always leaving, my eyes have been lifted and I've been focused on God, and there's a beauty in corporate worship you just don't get by yourself. You can't get it. So firstly, it's corporate. Secondly, it's planned. Now, did you notice that in in Nehemiah chapter 12? Uh, We had the verses reading, but there was a whole lot of administrative details about where the the two choirs were going to go and who was going to be leading them and who was going to be part of it. And it was was a whole lot of planning for worship. We like to think, I think, that worship is spontaneous, that like we're just doing our thing and suddenly there's corporate worship breaking out. And that can happen. But in the Scriptures, it's nearly always, again, planned for. You plan to worship. You plan to have those corporate times of celebration together. So let me tell you, this morning, uh, Dom and the team, they were planning last night. They were rehearsing. That's not faking it. That's just doing what we know. Because the musicians, as they lead us, if if they're all chords are all over the place, and then, you know, Dom says to Amos, oh, I think you're playing the wrong. It's just disruptive, right? And in, in here, you see them, them planning together that how the choirs will move, and we need to do that. I need to plan what I will say, or I could speak for 50 minutes and tell you absolutely nothing with probably the whole lot of heresy. I need to plan, you need to plan to be in corporate worship. Do you know that? Especially if you've got kids, you need to plan. 
Because it won't just happen. You won't suddenly find yourself gathered. There'll be all sorts of reasons why you won't be here. You need to plan. Uh, Worship is corporate. It's planned. Thirdly, and most controversially, it's loud. Now, I don't know if you notice this, and, and this is, I know this is dangerous ground, because over the years people have told me, no, corporate worship has to have an organ and hymns, and it has to be sung sometimes without musical instruments. Some people have told me that. Um, they've told me, all, you've got to sing only certain songs in a certain way. But if we look at Nehemiah chapter 12, for example, um, there's harps and lyres, and that's kind of sort of gentle stuff, isn't it? You know, the, the, the tinkling of a harp, or what's that word, the thrumming, or whatever you call it, of a harp. But then there's cymbals. Now, I'm not a musician, but cymbals tend to be loud. Is that true? Um, they can be loud. And there's trumpets, verse 41. So there's, you know, I don't know how it slingles, crash, crash, and trumpet. And maybe that's the ram's horn trumpet they're talking about too. They're loud. It's loud. Um, Worship, corporate worship, can be infinitely varied. It can be done beautifully with hymns and choruses. It can be done beautifully with electric guitars and trumpets and drums. Corporate worship, though, sometimes is loud. Fourth, worship, and this is most important, I think, worship is God-centered. Did you notice that um, in in this passage in Nehemiah chapter 12, and You've got to kind of, I had to read it a few times before I saw what was happening. So what is happening is, Nehemiah organizes two groups of people, one led by Ezra, who we've heard about, obviously, over these last weeks, the other led by Nehemiah, and they both go around the walls with these choirs. And what these choirs are doing, do you notice, is they're giving thanksgiving to God. So you've got these two big choirs with tons of people and tons of noise going round in the circle And where they meet is the entrance up into the temple of God. Uh, That's not just an accident. The whole point of worship we see in Nehemiah chapter 12 is that it's God-focused. It's not about Ezra. It's not about Nehemiah. It's not about the choirs and the singers. It's about God. It's, It's not terminating in the music or in the preaching, whatever they're doing. It's terminating in God. Worship is always god centered Uh, Maybe like me, you've been in worship services where really it was all about someone on the stage. Maybe it was about the preacher talking about God and Jesus, but really saying all the time, look at me, look at me, look at me. Or about the musicians or the worship leaders. They're saying songs to God, but really you kind of sense it and know it that the focus is, is on them. True worship, the kind of worship that we're seeing in Nehemiah chapter 12 it's thanksgiving to God. It's got to be God-focused. These, those on stage and leaders, they're just tools. They're signposts. They're, they're pointing towards what it's all about, which is the glory of God. And finally, worship is joyful. You can't miss that in Nehemiah chapter 12, can you? Five times joy is referred to. The worship of God is joyful. Why? Because it terminates in God, right? on the circumstances, in God, what is God like? God is joyful. God is completely joyous. And we think of God as being stern and austere and alien and different, and he's certainly bigger than us. But God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are in perfect joy in themselves. The worship of God, the thanksgiving we give to God for who he is and what he's done, is joyful. Listen again to verse 43. 
And they offered great sacrifices that day. And they rejoiced. For God had made them rejoice. To the rejoicing, God has stirred in their hearts. Um, and the women and the children also rejoiced. And the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. When we, we gather to worship, as I said before, sometimes we don't feel joyful, do we? Sometimes we think like, why do I have to do this? Can we get the singing part over? Because I feel less threatened by you know, taking some notes in a sermon. Or let's get to the morning tea bit. That's my favorite bit. Whatever it is you might think. Sometimes the corporate gathering of God's people as we worship is hard. It's hard. That's why we plan for it. That's why we focus on it. That's why we lift up God in it. But it is joyful. The joy of the Lord comes amongst the people of God when we proclaim who he is and what he has done. It's joyful. So it's corporate, it's planned, it's loud sometimes, it's God-centered, and it's joyful. So as I finish, I'm going to ask, how do we do this in practice? How do we do this in practice? Well, I use a sports metaphor. How do you get better at a sport? If you're an AFL player, how do you get better at AFL? Two things, really. Two, Two big categories. Number one, you learn more about the game. So if you're you're the the top-level AFL players, what do they do after a game? They study it. They put it on the screen. They they slow it down and they say, look, you know, Beck Whiting was running into an open goal. You know, why didn't she handball it off? You know, they, they will do that. They will look at it on the screen and they'll try and learn with information. They'll have whiteboard sessions. You've ever seen that at a footy game? You know, like all these arrows going around and you're doing this and that. That's part of getting better at something. You get more information about it. In regards to our worship, that's what I've been trying to do in the last minutes is give us more information about who God is and what worship is so that we can worship what we know. Because, you know, it's quite possible to have a, a really big, well, to go to a, a, go to a rock concert, right? From my age group, U2's in town. And, and you come to watch U2 and it's like, whoa, I, I'm being transported and lifted up. There's a real energy in a group of people who are singing and, or, or being sung to and the focus is on the guys on the stage. That can happen. But, but Christian worship is, is different, isn't it? Because we are, we are worshipping not the music itself, but we are worshipping God. But we need to, to worship God, we need to know God, right? We need information about him. And we get that from the Bible. We need to know who he is and what he does. We get that from, so we, so we, we want to grow in our knowledge because that deepens our worship. That's the first way we do it, more information. And I reckon as a church, we're pretty good at that. We're pretty good at getting lots of information about stuff from the Bible. I reckon that's a strong point. How's the other way you get better at a sport? You do it, don't you? So uh, they have the whiteboard sessions. They go, all right, let's run it on the ground and let's do that now. Let's put it onto practice on the ground and that's how we're going to ground all the things that we just learned by doing it. And for Christians, it's no different. We can learn about worship until we're blue in the face and nothing will actually change until we step out by faith and we do it. And we worship God, whether we feel like it or not. We, put, we give thanksgiving to him with all of those things that we see in, in Nehemiah and elsewhere in the scriptures. We put it into practice. So I'm done. We're going to do it. For, for the rest of our time together, 
I'm going to unleash Dom, is my term, and the musicians, and uh, run amok, uh, and we're going to worship. But as we do that, and uh, as these guys come up and, and get ready to lead us, I want us also to remember those things, that this is God-centered. And because it's God-centered, during our time of worship this morning, when you feel comfortable, it may be that you want prayer. Um, the prayer team, and I'm going to be over there, we'd love to pray for you. Something is going on in your life. And as people are worshiping, this is not fake, right? We worship even though there are things in our life that are difficult. We're not pretending they're not there. We're just lifting our eyes. They're not terminating in them. They're terminating in God. And maybe you want prayer for those things, any number of things. Maybe there's a healing that you want to pray for. Come and receive it. But also as we do that, you'll see at the front there's two, two bowls with the little two-in-one communion cups. And as we worship, we remember who God is. When you feel comfortable, and it might be at the start or at the end, um, in these next minutes of worship together, when you feel comfortable, come and take that. Peel back the top layer, see the bread, and remember that on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took that bread with his disciples, he broke it, and he said, this is my body. Do this in remembrance of me. And as you do that, you might do it up the front. You might go back to your seats. You might do it. It doesn't matter. And kids, if you as parents feel that your, your children understand who Jesus is, what he's done for them, they're welcome to come up too. And then as you, you peel back the other layer and you see the juice inside, remember Jesus saying, this is my blood, which is shed for you and for many. Do this as often as you drink it. And so while together we are worshiping, when you're ready, come and take the elements, take and feel the reality of your faith in, in the bread and, and as you taste the juice. Remember that Jesus Christ is the one that we worship. So I'm going to pray for us. And then, Dom, it's over to you and the team. We're going to worship. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that uh, in our difficulties and in our sins and our failings, they don't end with those. They end in you. And in you, there is forgiveness of sins. There's restoration. And we thank you, Lord, that we live in a good world and a good country. We live in a good city. We have so much to be thankful for, but we thank you, Lord, that even as good as those things are, the surf rolling in or getting on a bike or, or going out in nature or having a coffee, all of these good things, our joy doesn't terminate in them. Our joy terminates in you. Our joy ends in you. You are the end of all things and you have done great things and you have done so much for us. And this morning, Lord, whether we feel like it or not, we're gonna worship you. We're gonna corporately together lift up your name in the time that is left to us this morning. So we pray, Lord, move in our midst, touch our hearts, bring glory to your name because it's for our good that you do it. And we ask it in confidence and faith in the name of Jesus, amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.